It also has a militaristic masculine connotations. It is a word that is politically charged and a word that is very important, I think, to try to understand because for many years the word Pamuda has been used in such a way that it has led to its loss of power to actually inspire young people. But our guest today, Jonathan, Tehu, um, Jonathan Tehu Sijarana, thinks there is a way to maybe rethink the word. And as a historian, he finds a way to do it by tracing the word Pamuda in the history of the student armies, the Tentara Pelajar. Our guest today, Jonathan Tehu Zijarana, just finished a PhD thesis on something. Has it has it been conferred? It will be conferred on December 6th, Beautiful. I think, so how? not quite yet, not quite yet. Yeah. How are you feeling right now? Oh, God, it's it's over. I'm, I'm just happy that it's over <laughs> at this stage. How long did it take you? Oh, I started in 2019, yeah, okay. so on and off, like, four, yeah, four, four years. Yeah, right it's about. such a weird thing to finish a PhD, right? It's just like... <sighs> It's just the, I, I, when I submitted it, I, I didn't know what to do with myself for an entire day. It was like, <laughs> I, I let my baby off and then, you know, whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And so. now we're going to talk about your baby. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. <laughs> so Jonathan Tehuzijarana just finished a PhD thesis from the University of Melbourne yes. on something that I th I'm very interested in in this because it's, it's about Pamuda and I think... Yeah, I grew up in Indonesia in the 90s, and yeah, the, the word pemuda and the word angkatan as well, you know, that <laughs> you talk about in your thesis is is something that was a, part, a big part of my world, you know, and I was using that as well. Like, mm -hmm. I was like, I am mm -hmm. a pemuda, and, you know, if you don't speak Indonesian, pemuda is young people, yeah. basically, yeah. right? But it yeah. becomes a category, yeah. a political category yeah. and a cultural category, and you argue in your thesis that it started with the the creation of Tentara Pelajar, mm. student armies, mm. right? Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the student armies and how you argue that the collective identity of the student armies in Indonesia, in uh, Tentara Pelajar, and pre-colonial uh, colonial times mm -hmm. as well in mm -hmm. Indonesia mm -hmm. kind of led to this creation of the category of Pemuda. But before that, when I was reading your thesis, the glossary, the acronyms and initialisms, it's a very long <laughs> section, especially because, you know, Indonesians love it's, acronyms. It's necessary for, for any thesis talking about Indonesia to have a very long glossary section. But also because the, your thesis has something to do with, to do with the military culture, mm -hmm. right? Do you have a favorite 
acronym? Oh, oh, there's so many to choose from. <laughs> oh gosh, I've always been a big fan of Babin Kamtipmas. I've always thought that it was it was an excellent one, and I still don't know if I can get it right. Like Bintara Pembina and Kaamanan and Ketertiban Masyarakat, which is, uh, but then I've, but that's a very old school, very historian's answer. I think that there are much newer ones that are far worse. I think. <laughs> than, <laughs> but yeah, and even that word Bintara itself is a part of this Pamuda culture, yes, right? Yeah. So I think yeah, there's there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about here. So, what got you interested in studying Tentara Pelajar? Oh, um, well, well, first, thank you for having me. Um, well, I mean. It started first with uh, my, my initial thesis. Actually, I wanted to focus on writing Indonesian on Indonesian student activism, and a kind of like a, a historical analysis of Indonesian student activism from the late colonial era to mm. probably I would bookend it at 1998. But as I had done further research, and I read and I and I kind of went through first year of the PhD, I discovered that someone else had written something similar to that from an anthropological kind of ethnographic point of view. And I thought, well, I probably have to narrow it down anyway. And I found that in a speech, I believe this was in a 1970, I think, eight defense speech. Hmm. So it was when if If you if you know the I think Suharto was running for another term in power, and Itebe students, Institute Technology Bandung students, protested against him. One student, I believe, Rene Lewis Conrad, died, and a few kind of ringleaders of the student activist movement, the the BEM of of Itebe, I think, were arrested and they were tried. And one of them, Harry Ahmadi, at and his defense speech, cited about talked about how the student movement was how students struggle against tyranny and he cited the long running kind of history mm. of this talking about the Sumpah Pemuda of 1928 talking about Budi Utomo in 1908 but then also talking about the Tentara Pelajar which he kind of references in passing without necessarily perhaps not having a lot of knowledge about what, what exactly they were and I thought that that was a very interesting kind of A dichotomy because these students were arrested by soldiers and so I from that I was kind of very interested in examining the kind of weird interplay between these two kind of like identities of activist of revolutionary with the seemingly kind of opposite of disciplined soldier following order so that's where my first interest within came up yeah and Why do you think it matters for us to know about Tentara Pelajar in today's world? Mm, I think that today, I think that as we were talking about this before, mm. youth students are still used uh, as as an identity, I think, as a kind of social category. There, It's still quite used, it, it's quite often used in Indonesia even today, even despite As we were talking about earlier, the this idea of pemuda has become a little bit, you know, it's crusty. No, 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 like no, 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 like respect, self-respecting kind of youth activists would use that that term anymore without irony, right? Mm. And so, but at least within government circles, I think it's still quite often used. And I think that it's important for us to, for, firstly, it's important for us to be critical of, of that of that usage and, and for us to understand where kind of these roots come from. I think that the Tentara Pelajar are 
one strand of Pemudaism, but their identity is kind of like one that the government, at least under the new order, really adopted wholeheartedly. They quite liked it. But also, I think, like, in contemporary terms, I think that student activists, in particular high school student activists, I think, which I think, who I think are kind of one of the unsung heroes, I would say, mm. of, of contemporary student, student activism, right? I, 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 I see them kind of on and off trying to find, like, some kind of historical, like, touchstone from which to touch on. And I've seen in, in my conclusion, I talk a little bit about how they're instrumentalizing, some of them are instrumentalizing this Tantara Pelajar kind of rhetoric in kind of saying, well, look at these high school students who have guns and took part in the revolution. They took part in, have, they had a say in how our country was run. Surely that means that we should have a say in mm. how our country is run. And that also kind of bites back against this kind of this official conceptualization of Pemuda that the government wants to say, oh, here are youth. These are the ways in which real youth or proper youth can can express themselves, can express dissent or criticize the government. And I think that the Tantara Pelajar gives, I hope, I think, can provide an alternative to see, well, you know, well, there were other ways in which students were involved and it mm. often, you know, came at odds with the prevailing powers of, of the day. Can we talk about, you know, I think, you know, many people know that Tantara Pelajar existed. Mm -hmm. right? um, I mean, in history, we talk about Tantara Pelajar and you, you know, you, you, you study all the speeches and essays <laughs> where people are referring, referring to Tantara Pelajar, but I think we don't really know what Tantara Pelajar <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And it's such as, it, it was actually like a small group. Very right? small, very small. So can it? Tell us, just you know, summarize to us who probably have heard about Tentara Pelajar or have not heard of Tentara Pelajar. What what were they? So Tentara Pelajar, best described, are kind of militia units formed during the early stages of the Indonesian War of Independence or the Indonesian National Revolution, depending on how you want to go with that. So they were initially founded around kind of schools. So mm -hmm. under the Dutch colonial period and under the the Japanese occupation you 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 see i i think a the beginnings of the militarization of youth through scouting movements under the Japanese it became scouting movements began under the Dutch but under the Japanese they became even more militarized openly militarized and so you have this base of students of you know high school students middle school students often who are militarized who have these units kind of formed around schools suddenly the japanese have surrendered the english or the dutch are coming back and so they begin to organize themselves into student exclusive units surround that are used often based around schools more so we're talking about like high school students. high school. How, how old were they it kind of it's very it's very weird because of all the disruption to education that mm, happened yeah. but like some of the oldest the oldest students the commanders were off sometimes in their early 20s yeah okay, 21 yeah. maybe i think isman one of the main commanders in east java was early 20s but then you also had very young students um middle school age 15 uh, 14 and, and you often have children even kind of not as formal members but often assisting in terms of like mm. logistics and carrying messages and yeah things like right that. so it kind of started during the dutch period and then the japanese kind of intensified yep. that mm -hmm. 
and then that became and then they became units to fight yeah. the Dutch when they mm-hmm. tried to come well the Dutch and the English and the other people as yeah well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah uh, mo- mostly in Java yeah. some in Sumatra but mostly are con- most of them are concentrated on Java yeah right mm-hmm. and so how big were they how big were they well at its peak you could because these were units were often kind of disparate right like because you had units let's say in Surabaya and in East Java and you had units in Surakarta and in Samarang and so they're spread across and they don't become properly unified under a single command until a bit later in the war when the army had started to really organize itself but at its peak probably in that later stage in the war it would number maybe i think in in terms of formal tentara plagia probably fewer than 10,000 mm. i think so like you said earlier it was uh, in comparison to many other formations of the army at the time it was a very small unit and were they influential in any of the in any of the battles so what did they, they actually do mm, so in east java so in in the early stages of the war when they were still kind of like not very well organized to some extent they did take part in these the major battles like we recently on november 10th we had hari pahlawan right which commemorates the battle of surabaya mm. east java uh, tentara pelajar of the trip the tentara republic indonesia pelajar the student army of the republic of indonesia kind of they take part in that you had units that in central Java that also take part in fighting around Samarang and Ambarawa. You had in the mid kind of like 40s, in, in 1947, I think you have fighting in Malang. But like, so they're kind of, so these are all, I, I say glorious defeats because, you know, they, they, they distinguish themselves in battle. The officers generally like them. They're very well educated. They take the orders well in comparison to the other less organized, less educated, let's say, militia units. But they don't win anything, really, right? I think it's in the 1948 where kind of cracks begin to appear, or or cracks were always there, but they begin to kind of like, they widen in 1948 within the nationalist, the Republican camp, where the Tantara Pladyar are especially distinguished because they show their loyalty to the government and they crack down on kind of dissenting kind of army units, military units that are opposing government policy. And that's when they get really mentioned in dispatches of being kind of, you know, uh, yes, uh, such and such of the Tantara Plaja performed very well, mm. a very loyal unit, very disciplined, etc. So then they were praised for, well, parts of Tantara Plaja were praised for their loyalty yes. to the new Indonesian government. Yes, loyalty, discipline, they were effectively... They were at, at that time one of the most professional units in the army because the army at the time, as you as you know, was comprised of many of these kind of like militias that were independent formations or subservient to political parties or affiliated to political parties, and they often did not take very well to the government telling them and 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 oftentimes to the government telling them what to do and oftentimes, you know, there were policies that they actively opposed. I think during the Renville Agreement, where the government, the Republican government, effectively agreed for a retreat mm. and to, to cede vast amounts of territory to the Dutch uh, in, in Java, productive territory, many, and at the same time, there were also plans to cut down on the size of the army, which had that time ballooned because of all of these informal soldiers. A lot of militias opposed that. The Tantara Plagiar, on the other hand, had this seemingly, or at least in 
the, the commanders, at least, most of the commanders seem to want to say, well, you know, we're going to be loyal to this government. We trust in Sukarno or mm. other, some of these other people, you know, and we should oppose any dissidents because they're kind of like subverting kind of the revolution. They're, they're preventing us from obtaining independence. So obviously there were also dissenting voices yes. within the Mutara <laughs> right? um, So what was, what was that? What happened to these people who were, you know, more nakal, you know? <laughs> They, the the most notable one well I mean there were references of because like one of the big things about the Tantara Flagger was that and you often see this I think in contemporary in discourse on student movements in Indonesia is that they were supposed to be pure they were supposed to be politically <laughs> unaffiliated right yeah and so they were often they were they were chided like I in, in some of these some of like these small kind of Tantara Flagger like little publications you you often see uh, some students being chided for you know being what 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 would they call what would you call them like a you know taking part in you know drinks or card right, games okay. or something like that <laughs> but also there were being kind of, young people basically. yeah yeah being young people effectively right but you know you need to prioritize the struggle for independence you have to show discipline right mm. and so you you get that kind of level but then so there was that idea of purity in that sense but there was also the idea of purity in a political sense so Tendar Plaja were or at least the the, the 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 discourse, the dominant discourse, was that the entire plaza were supposed to be apolitical, and I'm using heavy air quotes there. Mm. And they end up kind of not affiliating with any political party, but really kind of becoming, going into the good graces of the army, because they perceived the army to be apolitical. So kind of like, because they they weren't affiliated to a political party, they didn't have an ideology per se, they were fighting for independence, right? And nationalism is like, to them, it's not really an ideology. It's like a cause, right? Mm. And so um, they're seen to... So they want to be, or at least the commanders want them to be apolitical. The most notable instance of Tentara Plagiar kind of being nakal, being naughty, as you yeah. said, happens in 1948. So in Madiun, when there was... In East Java, when there was a, a kind of... How would you say? Like splits in the military that we were talking about earlier. These cracks, they widen. Some... For army formations that were going to be kind of like cut 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 down end up rebelling against the government they affiliate themselves with the communist party or with the leader of the communist party at the time muso and at and madiun is a kind of a tentar plaja kind of like city one mm. of the, a, a city where they're kind of strong and at least at least two tentar plaja that are named alex Lugowo and suriono they oppose the, they they and they oppose this Tentara Plagiar policy of apoliticism and they affiliate themselves with the rebels mm. and they end up getting shot. They end up getting shot by firing squad. So they were yeah, arrested right. and for, for treason effectively. So when the rebellion failed and the communists were kind of and, and, and these kind of dissenting kind of uh, military formations were kind of snuffed out, they were kind of the the accounts are very romantic. It's kind of like so it's not as if a, it's a kind of it it's not showcase as a kind of evil but it's showcased as a kind of youthful indiscretion no. you know it's kind of like <laughs> they, they their last message is send please tell my mother i love them or something like yeah, that okay. and and you know and then it's kind of it's kind of i remember one of the entire plagiar authors that write about this moment say effectively that it, this was a moment where youth are at a crossroads and then you know you make decisions and sometimes some of these decisions aren't the best mm. you know and so they pay for it by getting shot so it had a long history dutch colonial time japanese and then now independence where we are seeing 
you know the category of pemuda mm-hmm. being used and also being censored by by Sukarno and then Suharto how did they use this category of pemuda to to well yeah to help them do what they wanted to mm-hmm. do so Sukarno's is like because Sukarno can rely on the pemuda as being because the pemuda of 1945 the pemuda who fought in the independence war they were still alive and well back then and many of them became key players in mm. kind of the political landscape at the time right in the military some in the military and some in politics who who were the the, the most famous ones so in terms of the tentara pladyar the ones that who you can trace the most easily are the two commanders so the commander of the east java trip the that we talked about mas isman he stays in the military after the war and he ends up becoming a co-founder i guess of golkar mm, okay but sukarno era golkar which is slightly different from sukarno <laughs> era golkar yeah. but still the same and and the second one is ahmadi who is the commander of the central javanese entire pledge from solo he's always from solo there's a statue of him in solo now and he is he's kind of he he i think he's much more clo- he's a bit closer to Sukarno then Isman was because he was promoted personally by Sukarno during the war for his brave actions in defending the republic uh, against kind of like internal dissidents and he ends up becoming a minister in Sukarno's last cabinet one of Sukarno's last cabinets so those are the two key ones there are a few other ones here and there that kind of pop up Sukanto Saidiman who is also a former tentara pledger but he became i think head of the PBSE Okay, the, yeah. the badminton kind of association. So Isman so Isman through his formation of Golkar, he when 1965 comes along and basically Sukarnoists in addition to suspected communists, right, are purged. Mm. He sides with Suharto, he purges his side of Golkar from communists and he eventually becomes a kind of a really key, he doesn't become a minister but he does become like a, a key kind of new order political operative ahmadi on the other hand is one of the people who are arrested during the super samar mm. because he was a, a sukarnoist minister he was very loyal and so he gets imprisoned um in the wake of 1965 and was that basically the end of the power of tentara pelajar in indonesia it's i think because it's through uh, like in my in the thesis like i kind of argue that well you you have these splits right within the tentara pelajar but really you have a large chunk of tentara pelajar who are still kind of in influential positions some of whom are in political power but many of whom are part of like the newly constituted indonesian middle class right mm. after 1965 and suharto's kind of policies and kind of spurring economic growth through kind of neoliberal economic policies motored by the by the Berkeley mafia uh, two of whom are worth the entire pledger two of them were right. the entire pledger we joyo niti sastro and emil salim were both part of the entire pledger and it and you you have many tentara pledger because you know they're they're well educated right for you to have an education for you to be able to access high school during the dutch late dutch colonial and japanese occupation you were quite well off mm. and after the war they were many tentara pledger were given scholarships either to continue studying in the military or to you know 
go to like a domestic or a foreign university, a university abroad to study engineering or something like that, to membangun um, negara, to develop mm. the nation, which was um, a key kind of tentara pelajar, piece of tentara pelajar rhetoric as well, kayak um, berjuang membangun bang, berjuang untuk kemerdekaan, tapi membangun bangsa setelah kemerdekaan, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And so... You, st- you still have them in these very influential positions, I think, in, in, in society and in politics uh, after 1965. And I, it's through these kind of positions, they begin to, I argue, influence youth discourse in Indonesia with the blessing of the regime and the military. Yeah. Through kind of, and, and they begin to de- regurgitate or develop this message of different modes of struggle. Mm-hmm. Of our struggle was against you know the colonizers. Our struggle was a physical struggle. Your struggle is a one for development. Your struggle is a one for building the country up. Right. So basically, to put it simply, this former Tantara Pelajar soldiers became influential in defining what pemuda means mm-hmm. in Indonesia and what they're supposed. To do, to do yes. and what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. Something that I, I was really interested in your thesis as well is this word. I think if you grew up in Indonesia, you know that we take this word seriously, angkatan, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even now, mm-hmm. you know, among PhD students in Melbourne, right, mm-hmm. we ask each other, oh, angkatan berapa? Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah, which, yeah, which angkatan yeah, are yeah, you? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, angkatan 2012 or whatever. Uh-huh. What's, what is this word, angkatan? And how does it play into the whole, you know, idea of, yeah, movements and pemuda, pemudaism, as you mm, said before? Mm. I think that when we look at these ideas of um, pemuda, right, and I was saying earlier, the Tantara Pelajar are just one strand of that, but they were, they happen to be the ones that end up being the dominant one, the ones, mm. or at least the one that the, the, the government, the state wants to adopt, right? The angkatan, I think, are really pivotal because they give you these anchors, right? These touch mm. points. Because and the Tantara Pelajar's great strength was that they could claim that they were part of the angkatan empat lima, the, yeah. the most glorious generation, you could argue, right? The generation that actually fought physically against colonialism. And I think subsequently they kind of want to impress upon kind of youth that well. If you're going to be a part of this new angkatan, like you were saying earlier, yeah. this is how you should feel. This is this is the struggle. This is this is the struggle of your angkatan mm. of of the the post independence, the, the angkatan pembangunan, or, or something like that. Now let's talk. So now we know kind of the history of tentara pelajar. I want to bring us to contemporary mm-hmm. Indonesia, right? Because uh, you've argued that tentara, tentara pelajar and the people and, you know, the, well, the, the cultures that have been created ra- around tentara pelajar created this idea of pemuda. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the presidential election. Okay, right? yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> we have a very controversial vice presidential candidate, Gibran Rakabuming, the mm-hmm. son of Jokowi, and he's controversial because the Mahkamah Constitusi, the Constitutional Court, basically changed the rule to kind of, you know, open uh, a new way for for young people like Gibran Rakabuming to be mm-hmm. up to be a part of the political landscape. I mean, first of all, what do you think about this this age limit debate about? Yeah, because if we are talking about Pamuda as 
powerful agents of change. Why do we have this age limit? What is the age limit? Forty. Forty. Uh, yeah. Why? Yeah. And yeah, it was before you got the woman. What what why, what do you think is behind this age limit rule in Indonesia? If if pemuda are supposed to be the agents of change, why why aren't people allowed young people allowed to be a part of political change? Mm. I th- well, even during we we I I've presented I think this this kind of very rosy image of of the state relationship with the tentara pelajar, mm. but at the start there was a lot of opposition within the state towards arming students. You had education minister the education ministry was actively and even from within students uh, the idea of arming students the education ministry was actively saying you know go back to schools in in the 1940s when the war was happening and there was a feeling among tentara pelajar that well you know they're downplaying what's happening our friends died in surabaya Mm. our friends died at the front lines and they're saying you know go back to school you know your struggle is there and there was a big debate about it, and eventually the government had to relent because you know they didn't have the resources at the time to really pressure these students, and they needed the men anyway. So, I think this contention, the, this tension between youth and uh, pemuda and and the state and the government, it's been there for a very long time, and and the state always espouses that they want to, um, they want pemuda to be active, political, mm. uh, they want to be pemuda to contribute, but. As, as we've mentioned before, they want them to contribute in, in, in the way that the state wants them to contribute, mm. right? Um, be that, I think, um, Anisa Beta wrote a very wonderful article um, commenting on um, the Stasus Millennial mm. um, back a few years ago and talking about how, you know, the, this is the new youth in Indonesia. Entrepreneurs, people in fintech, people who have startups, people who you know run unicorns, etc. Right, right. And so I think that the issue really is that the government, the government doesn't want youth to be politically active unless it's their kind of politics. Unless, mm. like, let's say, unless you're the son of a president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It, it, and and of course, Gibran has. All of the trappings. Gibran is, and of course, this is a historian talking about contemporary <laughs> politics, not controversial at all. But Gibran, but Gibran is has a business, right, or had a business. Gibran has those business credentials, and really, so in the minds of the the the, the government, which is prioritizing this kind of forwarding, this new kind of neoliberal inspired kind of understanding of pemuda and and pemudaism gibran's a perfect candidate because you know he he fits he ticks all the boxes in that sense politics is you're politically active in that economic sense right Mm. in in in, you're developing the nation in in air quotes in the economic sense and i'm guessing this is kind of related to what you were saying before about who from Tantara Pelajar became influential, mm. and these were not the well. In in fact, the the the, the leftist, <laughs> the Marxists no, were no, shot. No, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, under Suharto, you also yeah say in your thesis that this word kind of lost its luster, right? It's mm. kind of it becomes kind of cringy. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So what's behind that? I'll I'll say that it's it wasn't it was for a while it wasn't cringy. One of the the fun one of my my fun sources were these sets of and you know historians always love to talk about their primary sources. The these sets of kind of short stories that were published in 
a celebration of the 40th anniversary of independence, or, mm. or sorry, 30th anniversary of independence, so 1975, by the Dewan Harian Nasional Angkatan 45, and there's the Angkatan rearing mm. its ugly head again, right? And these were short stories that were written by, well, there, there were seven books, around se either seven or eight books, half of which were written by Tantara Plagia, by, by veterans, not just Tantara Plagia veterans, there were some Tantara Plagia veterans, but by veterans, and the other half were written by school children. One book for elementary, one book for middle school, one book for high, for high school. And at least in 1975, it appears from the short stories that they embraced this idea of Bermuda. Mm. That, that, you know, that, and that the, they, there was this very one, one, one of these short stories was written by the, the daughter of Atantara Blagia. And it struck me about how she talks about, you know, Today, today's generation are coddled. We must revert back to the Pamuda. And, and, you know, she was a high school student at the time. Yeah. So at least for a time, it wasn't very cringy. I think that now it, it shifted because of just how much, how loose, I think, to some extent, this idea of Pamuda is. And, and ultimately, despite the government really trying to through laws, et cetera, trying to find a, a, a clear definition for it, because it's such a it's such a contested term and it's such a powerful term still, despite the cringiness. Everyone wants to claim it, right? Mm. Like the government wants to claim it. Pumuda Panchasila, Freman organizations, <laughs> they want to claim it, right? And and you know, like you have figures in Pumuda Panchasila who lead Pumuda Panchasila who are quite old, and yet they're still qualifying themselves as Pumuda. And so I would think that it's this it's it's the sheer looseness of it mm. and its application its cynical application really by the state and by by you know individuals in power to justify particular kind of actions modes of political action be that you know maybe calling Gibran a pamuda for example mm. right and 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 you know comparing him to a famous indonesian pamuda sultan shahrir during the yeah yeah, yeah. and and so <laughs> you you gain that legitimacy right or you attempt to gain that legitimacy and because of that it becomes very cringy because you know it's it's that's why it's lost its luster right yeah and finally what would you say to young Indonesians today? I mean, because, you know, the next election, young people are going to be mm. very influential, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that this is mm -hmm. behind Prabowo's new image of being this youthful, <laughs> you know, like guy. And all these uh, yeah, presidential candidates, they want the votes of the young people. And I have met so many impressive young people, including yourself, Jonathan. <laughs> you. I don't feel young anymore. Thank you. <laughs> should should we be deconstructing or even reclaiming this concept of Pamuda again? I think because it yeah it lost its last during Suharto era. Is it? Yeah, is it useful? Do you think for us to go, well, no, not for for you <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to to reclaim this concept of pomuda? I fear that if I claim it, it will become even cringier. <laughs> but but I think that there's still a lot of use for it. I mean, we I, I first I think we have to claim that it's a very problematic kind of phrase, mm. right? And that it's not without its historical and political baggage. And right? in fact, something that we haven't mentioned is that Pamuda is basically masculine. Yes, it's very right? masculine. We, we're forgetting the Pamudi. Exactly, exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a very masculinist conception of, of youth. And during the war, Pamuda were 
not always very glorious. They took part in many kind of, you know, very acts of violence against Eurasians, against mm. Dutch, against Chinese Indonesian populations. And so it's important to take that, all of that into account. But I don't, but I, I think that there's still some use in there. I think there, there's some, there's a lot of use, I, I argue, in redefining the Bermuda. And I think like in terms of, I'm not, I'm, I was, I had this conversation with a friend a few weeks ago, but just talking about how if we look at youth activism today, student university student activism in particular, they eschew all affiliation with historic Bermuda. Now the modes of resistance are different. They come through, you know, K-pop stands and mm. armies and, 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 you know, ha and memes, right? Very fun modes of resistance. And I think that's great among university students, students who have this exposure to global media, to, 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 to popular culture in that sense. But like what I was saying earlier, it, it's interesting how high school students who are, or anak uh, STM, anak SMK, who yeah. don't have that level of exclusive access maybe to this so kind of So these are the technical media. students, right? Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. yes, the educational students. Vocational, right. yeah. And so they're, they kind of, you see them using this identity a lot more, mm. and you see them instrumentalizing the belajarness of it more. And I think that it's interesting because it empowers, by, by using this, if we can find a way to amend it, it empowers youth. It allows youth to look back, I think, at a historic moment, and hopefully critically, I, I would hope that they look at it critically, and say, well, this was a moment where we were empowered. This was a moment where we actually had the authority to have our voices heard. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I hope that in terms of upcoming elections and in, 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 in the future, that, that youth, perhaps they can look at this historic Pamuda in addition to many other things. But I hope that they can look at this historic Pamuda and say, well, this isn't the, how would you say, the, the categorizing, the pengotakan, that mm. the government, that the state wants us to understand uh, what youth is. Here is an alternative form of youth, here, and it's one that has historic credibility, right? One that has a lot of buy-in, at least in terms of like the nationalist discourse, right? It's one that we can use to, to really add to our legitimacy and, and add to our voice. I think that that's, I, I hope, that that's how how in future young mm. people can can use it. So maybe it's time for a new Sumpah Pemuda. Oh, no. Pemudi. no, or maybe not. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe not. Hopefully not. Oh God. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan Tehusijarana. Uh, is there anything else that you want to uh, add to our conversation? Well, I think, I think that that's, yeah. I think I think that one of the the other the last things I wanted to add was that the, the interesting thing about the Tentara Pelajar is that they're very much elite Bermuda, like mm. as we mentioned earlier. And they want to distinguish themselves from kind of non-elite Bermuda. They they talk about Bermuda Jalata and yeah, Bermuda Desa okay. in the in in their works. And so it's kind of almost they want to say, well, you know, we're better it it, it, it leads to that that sense of student elitism that's very often like a strand in Indonesian politics. But yeah, I think that that's also something interesting for us to take note of that now at least when the Tantara Pelajar view themselves as part of this educated elite in comparison to other Pemuda who aren't very educated, now, I guess, with if when you see, let's say, for example, 
student, high school student activists, vocational school students, mobilizing that term, mm. they're mobilizing it from an almost non-elite standpoint, that there's that shifting rhetoric of almost, well, the, the old elites are now becoming non-elites, and the university student elite, in air quotes, is using a different kind of form of, yeah. of rhetoric in that sense. So basically, that's probably one of the things that needs to happen, right? We need to kind of, well, you know, uh, deconstructing this word Bermuda, but also yeah, facing the historical facts around mm, it. Definitely. Which includes, say, it's masculine, it's violent, it's elitist, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there is somewhere in the spirit of the word a spirit of resistance. Yes, definitely. That's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jonathan, and um, uh, have fun at your graduation. Oh, thank you, Asita. Very <laughs> great to be here. Thank you.